Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'm going to be with you for the next hour with some great guests and we're going to be looking at some issues that are happening here at home in Ireland and around the world. And coming up on today's show, numbers were looming large in the news this week as the Exchequer figures were published by the government and they also published their summer economic statement. So we're going to look at inflation, spending and what lies ahead for hard-pressed families in budget 2024. And I'm going to be joined by economist Jim Power to talk about all of that. And moving over to France, there were protests continuing on the streets. The type of protests that have continually dogged the Termin office of Emmanuel Macron. So we're going to ask what it says about his presidency, what it's going to mean to the future of his tenure as president. And I'm going to be joined by Elizabeth Pigneux, who is the Elysee correspondent for the Reuters news agency. And finally, as the debate about the importance of public service broadcasting and truth mattering in the news rumbles on, we're going to look at the issue of misinformation and disinformation, asking what is the difference. And I'm going to be joined by a UK-based fact-checking organisation to do just that. If you want to get in contact with me, you can email takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. Well, first up today, we're going to start by turning to France because riots have been ongoing this summer all around there after the murder of a teenager. And we wanted to explore the riot behaviour that's active in France now and has been historically. But we also wanted to look at how Macron has contended with what is a very volatile population uh, during the course of his presidency. So I'm delighted to welcome to News Talk now Elizabeth Penu, who is Reuters political correspondent. Elizabeth, you're very welcome. Hello, thank you for receiving me. Now, um, I mentioned there that these riots that that have been happening recently in relation to the murder of that uh, teenager, um, it's it's not a new event for President Macron. It's something that he's had to deal with over the course of his presidency. We had the very public uprising in 2018, 2019, the Yellow Vest protests. We also had the labour reforms and pensions protests earlier this year. So I just wanted to sort of find out why riots are more common in France than they are elsewhere when we look at countries across the world, particularly in Europe. Um, Can you give us a sense of why people are more ready to take to the streets to protest for their beliefs in France? Well, I think there is a kind of tradition of debate in France and people go on strike or take to the street rather easily in France for to fight for their rights. But this time, uh, it's a different kind of crisis, I think. It was really pure violence, uh, a new kind of expression of anger that the uh, Macron administration has to face. Um, so Macron is back to... Um, to his schedule today, it just uh, is on the Tour de France. Um, he's uh, and he, he just uh, talked this morning, uh, uh, saying that he we need to understand the root causes of riots. He says because I think uh, even one week after these very violent events, uh, everybody here is. Uh, is in a state of shock, kind of state of shock, because uh, we are not used to that kind of violence. We are used to demonstrations in the street, to strikes. Sometimes there have been episodes like that, but this episode was particularly violent, and um, we need to understand what happened this time. And what, in your view, 
is the differential here? What brought that violence that hasn't really manifested before? Well, we saw, uh, you know, rioters, torching cars, uh, looting stores, which is a very uh, new phenomenon, looting. Uh, and they especially targeted town halls, police station, uh, representation of the, of the authority of a republic. So we need to understand why... Uh, they choose this target. Mm. And um, also, the rioters are very young. The average age is uh, 17. A third of them are under 18, which raises questions about the role of the parents and education. And of course, it raises questions about immigration, the relationship between the police and the people living in these poor areas, and also the role of social media that was major uh, in these riot riots. Um, for instance, we had riots uh, in the what we call the banlieue, uh, the, the the poor areas around the, the big cities in 2005. But there was no uh, social media at the time, and um, it was it lasted almost a month. It was under uh, President Chirac presidency, but it was uh, less violent in a way. So um, this time uh, we really need to know what's happening and and the political. Uh, uh, landscape is rather um, worried mm. at the time, and 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 want want to understand. And and Emmanuel Macron received uh, three hundred uh, mayors uh, at the Elysee on Tuesday. Uh, mayor that was um, concerned and uh, that was involved in those in those uh, violences, and uh, they they began to. Um, to organize their ideas and uh, trying to understand what's uh, what's going on. Because, well, we need to find answers rather quickly because uh, it gives a very bad image of France uh, all around the world. And the government hopes that everything will be uh, under control for Bastille Day next week. And then there is, you know, the Rugby uh, World Cup in September and October and the Olympic Games next summer. Mm. Uh, so these are international events. But uh, we also need, of course, to find, uh, to, to, to understand what's going on for the for the, the you know the well-being of the French people simply yeah you mentioned there the the banlieue which is the the suburbs I suppose outside of cities where historically this has kind of happened in the past we have that cycle of a violent incident then you've got the interaction with the law or their police sparking now what we have is social media clips and that that awful video um of that poor teenager dying and then that is I suppose inculcating more the seeds of mistrust but where does misinformation and disinformation now feed into it and that outreach of social media that's happening now that hasn't happened in the past? Well, the social media this time uh, played a, an important part because all the gatherings, you know, were organized on the social medias and many youngsters uh, just didn't realize what we were doing. That's what that's the feeling we have. They just wanted their face uh, on on uh, they wanted their face on Snapchat or something like that, you know. So it's it's a phenomenon that we we need to face and analyze. And um, the French government wants to work, of course, with the big platforms platforms like Snapchat, Twitter, um, TikTok, and all that, uh, to prevent this in the future, to change uh, the algorithm, for instance, and uh, work together with the, with the big platforms. Mm, yes. Mm. Yeah, because it's something we're going to be talking about later in the programme. There's a lot of misinformation and disinformation and false videos that were circulating to kind of in, in, entice more activity and more rioters onto the streets. Can I just turn for a second to the wider picture of Macron, Elizabeth, and, and how he has dealt with this as a politician. You know, I mean, 
we saw him in this particular controversy do some very strange things at the beginning, like attending an Elton John concert, which caused more outrage. What 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 is his kind of go to approach when it comes to try and appease public sentiment? Well, Emmanuel Macron has got a very um a very, it's um, got his own way of dealing with crisis. He wants to do everything. Mm. That, that's Macron. He wants to do things by himself. He, for instance, after the Gilets Jaunes crisis, he went on for the big debate. He went everywhere in all the towns in France, and you know, um, and, and he was speaking during hours with mayors, with people in the streets. Uh, so it doesn't. Um, get help from his ministers. He's got, of course, but he wants to do things by himself. And he also, Macron way is, well, I do what I want. I, I do what I think is good for you. Uh, I go to the Elton John concert if I want, and so what? I drink beer in front of cameras, and so what? Um, uh, what's the problem? That's the Macron. And people consider it as some kind of uh, arrogance or... Um, but that, that's Macron's way. He mm. wants to do things uh, his own way. Some people like that think he's very brave. And some of us says, uh, well, he should get help and should he's too confident. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's, that's part of the problem with his image because uh, um, it's, uh, part of the, of the French people think is he's just too tough. Mm. And uh, he is tough, but some think it's just uh, bravery uh, and he knows what he wants. Yeah. But so, some others think it's just, uh, he's just too, too, um, too tough. Yeah, and we'll, we'll talk. Not about understand the people. Not, not understanding the pe- the problems of the people. Yeah, and we'll That's talk. Problem. We'll talk about what that means for his legacy in a few moments. Um, but how is it working out for him? Like when he applies these tactics of micromanagement himself, not delegating, and being very tough. Does he like? Does he make the situation better, or does he make it worse? Well, we have to um, admit that uh, he ended the crisis. In the end, mm. you know, he uh, he was faced with many crises and every time he just uh, faced it with calm and uh, he was very organized. Uh, while the, the Yellow Vest crisis, it was very violent. And, uh, well, he ended that with a big debate. Then there was the COVID, of course. Uh, then there was uh, the, the strike at the beginning of the of this year of the pension reforms. And at the end, it was adopted the way Macron wanted to. To be, of course, there is anger in the country, but he uh, he managed to have this uh, text um, adopted in the end, which was not the case for previous uh, presidents, for instance. Mm. Um, yeah. Some some had to withdraw the text. So that's Macron's way. He, he's dealing with the crisis, and he hands the crisis. Well, the the, the government is rather uh, not. I won't say proud, but is rather happy to have ended this crisis uh, so fa- so fast. You know, it just lasted like three days mostly. Yeah. And uh, people was were fearing that it could last for a month. So, but it could, well, they know that they could, uh, this could happen again uh, anytime. So they, they really need to know and they were kind of surprised yeah. by, the, by the eruption of this of this crisis last week so uh, they were expecting like the, when they saw the video I was told yesterday uh, when they saw the video they knew there would be demonstrations in the banlieue but they did not expect at all uh, such an eruption of, of violence so uh, they need to be prepared for the next time but yeah. there will be a next time there will be a next time but that is an interesting point you make so 
like, look, his tactics may not be pretty to, to look at. It might be painful from a media sense to go through. And, you know, it's obviously very destructive. These type of riots and protests cost a lot of money for the French mm. state. But, like, he yes. does get his way in the end. But but at what cost internationally, I suppose? You mentioned there, you know, what France looks like to the rest of the world. And the UN this week said of these riots that it was a moment in time for France for once and for all to kind of address the racism and the the conflict between law and stuff. So out in the world, this is not a good look for Macron. What do you think his international sort of um, reputation is like now? Is he respected? Well, I think he's still kind of a, a respected figure because he's very active uh, on the European ground, for instance. He's one of the most, uh, I mean, uh, he was elected like six years ago, uh, which is a long time for a, um, uh, a European president. Most of the others are, have been elected uh, sooner. So he's like, uh, he's, he's very young, he's only 45, but he's like an old president in a way. I've, he tried to, to be uh, involved in the European Ukraine uh, Russian uh, conflict as well is um, but um uh, at the same time, uh, um, his image, of course, is uh, is, is at stake with uh, with all those riots, and uh, and uh, indeed, uh, France has to face problems like uh, like like racism, like immigration, like the the relationship between the police and and uh, and the opinion. And it's true that what but um, the the Macron administration thinks that. Um, the, the the foreign press was a little bit too tough with with their uh, reading of the crisis, saying that it's not a racist problem. It's not a, uh, what happened last week. It's just delinquency. It's um, it's it, it has to do with the with education, with delinquency, but not with the um, origins uh, of the. Of the, of the victim this time, mm. they they kind of reject this um, this point of view. Um, that's that's the tendency. They were um, a bit annoyed by the the way uh, the foreign uh, media uh, analyzed uh, the, the 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 riots. Mm. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. I'm speaking to Elizabeth Pino of Reuters, and she's the political correspondent. There, we're talking about the recent riots in France. Just speaking to that issue of. How how the international press picked this issue up and it, it is just about delinquency. But I mean, you know, it's hard to see that that's true when you look at the amount of money that the French government have invested in these areas. They still have not gotten their arms around the socioeconomic problems um, that lie in those, you know, suburbs, which are called the Benue, um, and they haven't come to terms with it over many decades. So um, it's something that maybe um, is intensified by social media and intensified by an incident like this. Is it fair to say that this is something that is bubbling away in the undergrowth in France? Well, then... The question of those, those billions uh, given to the to the banlieue for the, the, the last uh, uh, decades um, it's a, it's a debate that that, that is taking uh, place in France at, at the time. Uh, so, so part of the part of the of the opinion thinks that we give too much too, too much money, and uh, another part say it's not enough. Uh, and also, these riots, of course, are, are good for the extreme right, for Marine Le Pen, because uh, she doesn't say much. But um, many people think that this, this went too far and, and we need authority and order 
uh, in France, and, and and all this is just a mess. Mm. Um, but uh, talking about the the the, the politique de la ville, what we say, meaning the the the, the, the policy that deals with the with the banlieue. Um, well, uh, the government says that that this was useful. Uh, that many suburbs were reconstructed, and uh, and uh, there were a lot of efforts uh, on the um, on the the job ground, on the employment ground, for instance. It's true that the, the the situation of the employment is much better now, and there have been improvements in many ways. But they also explain that um, if you give um, jobs to, uh, to to people of the banlieue, they will move. They won't live there anymore they will change they will come to 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 some other towns or other parts of the town and be replaced by poor people again mm. so the the, the the statistics don't change but uh, they explain that uh, the statistics maybe don't change but the situation changes uh, when you think when you look at things uh, more more closely uh, but still uh, uh, and they well macron tends to say that there is a um, it's not they say it's not a, a just a problem of the banlieue which is true because many towns uh, uh, we have we have nothing to do with the banlieues were 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 involved well, in the yeah. riots yeah. And, and that's a new phenomenon that's also true. some uh, yeah. so that's some uh, towns in the in the in the countryside yeah. um, but well we need to deal also it raises also the problem of the drug uh, the drug dealers there are four thousand points of dealing of drug dealing in France so that's even in the in very small towns and even villages, so this has to be faced. Uh, this is one of the uh, the, uh, the problems. Yeah. Um, but you, you see, it, it raises many questions. It's not we cannot just say it's a uh, it's a problem of the banlieue. It's another uh, riot in the in the banlieue. No, it's more much no. much more wider than that. Absolutely, it's a much more complex and I suppose yes. a problem complex. that d- deserves a lot greater discussion. And hopefully, we will return to it on another occasion. But for now. I'm afraid time has caught us. But Elizabeth, thank you so much for taking the time for being with us today. That was Elizabeth Pinya, who's Reuters political correspondent. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. Now, more revelations this week at RTE and the importance of trusted media sources never more relevant than it is now. So we're going to look at the issue of misinformation. What is it? What are we doing about it? And Are we getting any better at protecting ourselves from it? Find out all about it after this short break. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. Now, what would the world look like if Hillary Clinton had been elected in 2016, if Brexit hadn't happened and if Joe Biden hadn't got elected in 2020? Well, a lot of the speculation about this and those elections was around information and disinformation because generations now who are younger are bypassing traditional news outlets and they're turning to influencers on social media platforms to get their news. But is there a way for them to kind of verify the content that they're consuming? And what's the motivation of the people who are deliberately spreading fake news? Well, I'm joined now by Steve Novotny, who's editor of Full Fact, which is a team of fact checkers and campaigners who find, expose and counter harmful or bad information. Steve, you're very welcome to News Talk. Hello there. Good to be on. Now, Steve, before we get into this whole debate about misinformation and disinformation, just tell me a little bit about your organisation. It's intriguing. Uh, How's it set up? How's it funded? What does it do? Yes, so we uh, are a 
growing team in the UK of uh, around now just over 40 people in total. We're a charity. Um, and really, we're set up to tackle bad information in whatever form we can. Um, so, you know, our primary activity is fact checking. Uh, a lot of the people who work for us are journalists like myself, um, but we also have policy colleagues, communications colleagues, and obviously people to run the organization as well, fundraising and operations and so on. Um, and really what we're trying to do, as I say, is tackle bad information however best we can. Some of that is publishing fact checks and correcting claims, but it's also about trying to identify the underlying problems and actually do something about it as well. Mm. Now, we're having a big debate here at the moment uh, in Ireland about the importance of trusted news sources because there's a, a an ongoing issue with the, the public service broadcaster here. Uh, so I just wanted to explore a little bit about misinformation and disinformation. Is there a difference between those two terms? So the, uh, the terms, I, I think, are sometimes used interchangeably. I think um, misinformation is, is meant to be bad information. Disinformation has the kind of the idea of it being deliberately bad information. So um, you know, misinformation can be a mistake. Disinformation would, would tend to be more than that. OK, so talk to me about the fact checking process. How does one start that or how are you alerted to something that may be wrong yes i mean uh, part of our challenge really is choosing what to check because there's obviously you know a, a huge amount of debate in many many spheres we we primarily check claims from politicians we check claims in the mainstream media and we also check claims on social media so those kind of three different sources um we have quite a sort of a regimented monitoring process we, it's important to us that we try and sort of monitor for claims in a balanced way in an impartial way obviously that's a huge part of what we do um, and then really we're looking i guess for prominent claims for harmful claims in particular particularly online if we see i don't know um we've seen claims trying to persuade people not to have cancer biopsies and that kind of thing like really really dangerous dangerous claims that obviously you know is something that we would prioritize um, but really, we're looking to kind of, you know, fact check a range of different claims and and sort of tackle misinformation wherever we find it. Yeah. And where do you find it? Like, what's the motivation for people to spread this type of misinformation or disinformation? Like, what are they trying to achieve themselves? Is it um, organized um, efforts or can it just be bad actors who are malevolent for the sake of it? Well, it's really difficult to say. And so one of our principles is that we we try not to assume what the motivation of people might be. So we we tackle a claim as we find it. Um, and, you know, we, we take it at face value. And it's, it's obviously much harder for us to say why people might be making a claim. Sometimes it might be a genuine mistake. People do misspeak in live broadcast interviews. Um, I, I say, as I'm aware, I'm doing this at the moment. Um, but, but it happens. People make mistakes. Um, and then sometimes there are kind of misunderstandings. And I guess that goes all the way. There's a sliding scale towards more deliberate, deliberate um, false claims where, where it's sometimes hard for us to prove that that might be the case. But certainly we would have a suspicion that that, that, that might be the case. Yeah, maybe let's just talk about some examples. Was your organisation active when Brexit, the Brexit campaign happened, for example? It was, yes. We, so we were founded in 2010. I, I actually joined after that, but it was certainly a very big, big thing for us at the time. 
And was there a lot of activity in terms of fact checking? Because we now know a lot of the claims that were made during that campaign were completely erroneous. And I think the British public and indeed us here in Ireland have learned to our detriment now that it's caused quite a bit of chaos. So what was your role in that? So, I mean, we approached it as we would, I guess, other big political issues. We did so from an impartial point of view, so we weren't trying to check in any one direction. And we made sure we checked claims on both sides of the campaign. Um, it's it's difficult, particularly in a sort of election or referendum scenario, to do sort of forward-looking claims. Like, we always say you can't fact-check the future. So if people are making predictions, um, it's not always possible to, to, to sort of, you know, say how those predictions will turn out. But what we can do is look at sort of claims about what's happened already, about what those predictions might be. Um, and I mean, Brexit was huge at the time. It was huge for us in 2016. It's still very big on our on our agenda. It's something that we're regularly writing about and, you know, that people want us to fact check even now, because obviously the, the arguments go on about what the impact of Brexit was. Mm. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock and I'm talking to Steve Nabotny, who is editor of Full Fact, which is a fact checking company in the UK looking at mis and disinformation. Steve, um, you mentioned that you're still analysing Brexit today um, and, you know, we have become, I suppose, more aware, some of us, to bad information, particularly on social media. Um, but have we gotten any better at tackling um, an organization or an individual who's deliberately trying to skew something? Well, what, what we try and do, what we talk about is as a kind of a fact-checking organization, the old model of fact-checking was kind of publish and pray. So you would kind of write a fact-check and then hope that people read it um, and that that would be enough. But we kind of move very much towards what we call publishing and acting. So we try and kind of take action off the back of our checks. Um, and that can be people who are sort of deliberately spreading misinformation, but it can just be trying to tackle the root causes of what's going on. So a couple of different examples on a very on a very broad scale. Um, we have an honesty in politics campaign, a petition where we're trying to make it easier for MPs to correct the record in Parliament. Even if they want to do the right thing, they sometimes struggle to do that. Um, and then at sort of the micro level, another example, we, we've checked claims, for instance, there was one earlier this year that flu was behind one in 10 deaths in the UK, when actually the data shows it's flu or pneumonia. It sounds like a small thing, but it's down, we mm. felt, to sort of the way the data was presented by the Office for National Statistics. So we spoke to them and we got them to update the way that they present their data. So we're really trying to sort of make a difference in big ways and in small ways to try and sort of prevent misinformation occurring. Now, you're an experienced journalist and a lot of specialities in the in the health area. So I'd imagine that COVID and the pandemic was a particular challenging time for an organization like yours. It, it was. I think it was a sort of big moment in our world, really. Um, and again, I, I, I personally joined Full Fact halfway through the pandemic. So um, so I wasn't there for the very beginning of it. But it Essentially, you know, it saw us pivot towards tackling health misinformation in a big way, as obviously, you know, lots of organisations did. It, it kind of inspired us to hire a medical fact checker. So we now have a, a, a junior doctor who's a full time member of our team who helps us kind of tackle clinical claims. Um, and it's, you know, it continues to be a, a, be a thing. Obviously, you know, it's less it's, it's fallen down the news agenda, but there are parts of the Internet which are still very much engaged with sort of vaccine misinformation and so on, even even sort of two or three years in. 
Mm. And when I asked, are we getting any better at dealing with it? Um, one of the things I, I wanted to look at was I read recently about uh, Canadians' efforts in, in relation to fact checking. It's it's set up a critical election incident public protocol. It's a bit of a mouthful, but it, it seems to be like an independent panel of public servants who themselves decide whether a misinformation is you know, pervasive in an election. Do you see more governments using your type of services or indeed is there any move that you detect to governments having um, a unit like this set up internally? Well, I think that's a really interesting example of of what can be done. And I think there are lots of kind of different models for governments to approach this. I mean, we, we personally are, are removed from government. Like we're not, you know, we are independent of government. We, we fact check the government. So it's not as though... Um, you know, we would be working sort of hand in glove on that. But, you know, there are different there are different ways that governments and society as a whole can can a- approach the kind of, you know, information emergencies, I guess you would call them. We we have a framework for information incidents, which is, you know, a similar kind of model where you look at kind of emerging problems. I think what's really important is that there is a system, that there is awareness that can be done. I think the pandemic was a big moment for this because, you know, obviously the pandemic affected people's lives in lots of ways, but misinformation around it was, you know, was a thing. We've seen other moments. We saw it with the outbreak of the Ukraine war. Even this week, for instance, the some of the videos and pictures coming out of France that we've been checking are, you know, very misleading, lots of rumour online and that kind of thing. So there are there's a lot of pressure on government to get this right. I don't think there's one model that necessarily... You know, is the is the answer, but it needs to be front and center of people's minds. Yeah, and we kind of often look to regulators, governments to protect us, but we also have our own sort of personal responsibilities when it comes to you know not getting caught up in something. Is there any kind of tools we can use on social media to help us to do that? Is there any advice you can give us um, to try and stop ourselves getting sucked down that rabbit hole? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I think, you know, there are, for people who want to sort of try their hand at fact checking themselves, there are lots of ways you can do that. Um, You know, there are reverse image searches. We have a guide on our website on how to spot AI generated images, for instance. Um, But probably the the bigger advice that that we try and offer people in terms of, you know, social media claims in particular is just to take to take a breath you know the the things which tend to spread very rapidly on social media tend to be very emotive claims people often share them for the very best of reasons they want to warn people they want to you know highlight something you know the people are uh, often sharing this information for, for very good motives but having that kind of detachment having that kind of pause before you potentially amplify something is really so important and i think you know we just try and encourage people to to do that in very, you know, give people practical examples of where, you know, it might not be going right and try and offer offer that to them as an example. Mm. So finally, Steve, today, I just wanted to ask you to give us an example of a story that kind of, you know, appeared online in particular, uh, took hold, and you as an organisation were asked to challenge and dealt with to try and turn it around, just to try and give us um, that end to end uh, of your service. Um, it's, it's difficult to pick one example. I think I think probably I'd pick a very recent one. I mentioned the the French riots already. So you know, an example of how we operate, particularly when we're checking online misinformation, has just happened in the last few days, um, where there were obviously you know you know lots of disturbances in France, some very you know worrying news, worrying a very worrying situation for people there. 
but what we saw in the kind of online areas that we were monitoring was that um, you know false and misleading claims were being made sometimes I think as I say you know for the best of reasons in other cases it felt as though potentially people were trying to kind of exploit the situation exploit people's concerns to make their own sort of political points and the way we've engaged with it is by you know methodically working through some of the most the most shared claims you know if, if, if they're accurate they're accurate but often they're not we've seen um, we've seen essentially fake fake documents from the French government. We've seen AI generated images used. We've seen lots and lots of images and, and video footage used out of context or uh, video footage from the UAE, for instance, passed off as, as footage from France. So we've tried to kind of methodically tackle, you know, the examples that we've seen. And at the same time, talk about the underlying problem too. So talk about some of what I said earlier around mm. you know, asking people to think twice before they share stuff on social media. Yeah, indeed. We've just been talking earlier in the programme about those French riots. And one of the things that obviously we, we all would recognise is that there's a there's a an extreme involvement of youth culture in that. Do you think that that's why uh, the social media side of things, plus those, um, uh, uh, the, I suppose it's the age issue that allows those type of images to kind of go around so quickly in a way that maybe in the past it hasn't kind of drawn the people on the streets in, in the way it is now? I mean, it's a, it's a really good question. I don't know. I, I, I don't have, being a fact checker, I don't have any evidence to, to sort of compare against previous examples. But what I would say is um, some of the some of the claims we've been checking have been on Facebook, which is maybe not a kind of the a youth social network of choice, but but is still, um, you know, filtering through to different social networks. We, we do talk about the next general election as maybe being sort of the TikTok election. I think mm. there are new ways that people are communicating and it, 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 there's, a, there's an ever accelerating speed to it all, really. You know, it's so important that if there are claims circulating, they're challenged rapidly because they will spread very quickly. Well, uh, thank you, Steve, for joining us today with that very insightful view on this issue of fact checking. That was Steve Nabotny, editor of Full Fact. You're listening to Taking Stock on News Talk. Up next, economist Jim Power gives us his take on the government spending plans that were released this week. Stay tuned. Now, numbers loomed really large this week in the Irish economy. We had the exchequer figures and the government also published their summer economic statement. So we're going to look at inflation, spending and what lies ahead for us all with the one and only Jim Power. Jim, thanks very much for joining us today. You're very welcome, Mandy. Now, before we get stuck into the exchequer figures and the summer economic statement, um, I want to ask you about revisions that have been made in, in relation to forecasting from like the likes of Davey, even the ERSI, ESRI, even downgrading the GDP growth forecast for Ireland. Can you just tell us why that's happening and, and what's their narrative around uh the reduced figures? Okay, uh the narrative actually is quite straightforward. Um, as you know, or, and as the listeners um, hopefully have a knowledge of, um, gross domestic product is the measure of how an economy is performing. Okay, it's the international metric. But in Ireland's case, that international metric GDP is grossly exaggerated, mm. largely because of the activities of multinational companies. Uh, you know, we've seen since 2015 a significant inflow of intellectual property assets, which are very valuable and add significantly to GDP. 
aircraft leasing is a very important element of the Irish economic model because Ireland is one of the global leaders in aircraft leasing. And we also see at the end of every year, the multinational sector repatriates over 130 billion last year to its shareholders. So all of these things contribute to GDP, but the real impact of on the ground in the economy is pretty limited. Okay, mm. so under, I think it's important to understand how GDP exaggerates the size and health of the economy. What we've seen over the last four or five months has been a significant reduction in the exports of chemical and pharmaceutical products by the multinational sector. And this is something, Jim, you've been banging on about for a while, haven't you? Well, I- indeed. I mean, we, we have this concentration risk in the Irish economy. 57% of our corporation tax take comes from 10 companies. Those 10 companies employ a lot of people. They contribute a lot of other taxes through employment and so on. So we are inordinately dependent on a very small number of multinational companies. But what's happening on the chemical and pharmaceutical side at the moment, um, I think is more of a technical adjustment than a sign of things going south. Because during the period of COVID 2021-22, we saw a significant increase in exports from those sectors. And now we seem to be settling back down to a more normal level. So there is a downward adjustment. And as those exports decline, and they're down about 18% Mm. in the first um, four months of the year, and indeed the exports to the United States are down about 27% of those products. So I think this is a technical adjustment rather than a sort of a structural change in the chemical and pharmaceutical sector here. But the point is that that reduction in exports will have a significant impact on GDP. And that's why we have bodies like the ESRI, the Department of Finance, you know, revising down their GDP forecast for this year. But the important point is that if you strip out those anomalies I mentioned earlier um, and you come up with a more realistic measure of what's happening on the ground in the Irish economy, which is modified domestic demand. You know, the economy is doing okay. Um, It's not doing as dramatically well as the GDP numbers would suggest, but it's doing okay. Uh, We have record tax revenues. We have record employment. We have record low unemployment. Consumer spending is holding up reasonably well. Car sales are up by 18.5% so far this year. Mm. Uh, And business investment is also decent enough. So the economy is doing okay, actually. Yeah. Now, you mentioned record tax heads and the exchequer figures revealed this week that everything was very healthy on that front, probably even in relation to corporation tax, even better than we might have thought earlier in the year. But um, when it comes to the surplus, is there a story behind the large drop between last year and this year? Uh, that there is, um, there's been effectively a four billion turnaround in the situation, and that is exclusively down to the fact that in February of this year, uh, the government transferred four billion into the National Reserve Fund. In other words, the rainy day fund. So if you adjust for that four billion, um, basically the um, surplus in the first six months of this year is slightly ahead of the surplus in the first six months of last year. So I wouldn't be 
um, put off by the headline decline in the surplus. It is due to that technical transfer of four billion and the underlying budgetary situation is still very strong. You know, there is no doubt about that. We're going to deliver a surplus of a projected 12 billion or thereabouts this year and probably something similar next year. So the public finances are doing well and it is largely on the back of very buying tax revenues, income tax, VAT Mm. and corporation tax um, continue to be particularly strong. So that's good. And tell me this, Jim, was there anything in the exchequer figures that did surprise you? Well, uh, the thing that surprises every month is the strength of corporation tax. Uh, In the first six months, we took in 10.5 billion. That's up 20% on the first half of last year, 1.8 billion. And there was an expectation coming into this year that we could see some slowdown in corporation tax take because um, a lot of the large multinationals globally, particularly in the technology sector, um, are experiencing less favorable circumstances than in recent years. But that is not feeding through to the corporation tax take in this country. And in fact, it continues to be extremely buoyant. And it is likely that we're going to take in probably 24 to 25 billion this year in corporation tax. And to put that in context, back in 2014, the total take from corporation tax would have been about 4.6 billion. So there's been an over 20 billion increase since 2014. And a lot of that has occurred over the last three or four years. So the multinational presence here, you know, is making a very strong contribution to the corporate tax take. Uh, the Department of Finance would be worried that of that 24, 25 billion, I'm projecting that around 12 billion of that uh, could be vulnerable or transitory. In other words, they're not convinced that this can be sustained and that if we were to get some sort of a readjustment that around 12 billion of that annual tax take um, could disappear. But from the Department, I, I, my interpretation would be that the, this is finger in the air stuff from the Department of Finance. You know, they're looking at the contribution the 10 largest multinationals are making, contributing 57% of the corporation tax take. And they're extrapolating that forward and saying if those companies, you know, saw a slowdown in profitability, around 12 billion could disappear. Yeah. I think, look, it is really about tempering expectations as well. One thing they have done a good job of is kind of suggesting that this is a windfall and sort of a marketing you know, efforts to kind of categorize this as something that is maybe a once off. So in fairness to them, they've done a good job of that. Just on the corporation tax, like we're talking about maybe getting to a situation where we collect in one month. Uh, the same corporation tax that we did in one year way back in, in 2014. But we'll get to more of that in a minute. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock, and I'm speaking to Jim Power, the economist, about the exchequer figures that were released this week and the summer economic statement. So just turning to that summer economic statement, Jim, um, there's been a lot of discussion about the 6.1, the tax, this core spending, just as an overall perspective, what did you make of of what their plans are? Okay, the the first thing I I would say is that the reason why the Department of Finance is sounding a note of caution on the corporation tax side is because they are fearful, the department is fearful 
that we repeat the mistakes we made in the run-up 2007. In other words, we spent money on the back of a tax base that suddenly disappeared when the construction and property sector um, collapsed. Okay, And the problem is that um, when you commit to public spending, politically, it is really difficult to roll back from it. It sort of becomes permanently embedded in the expenditure system. And if the tax base disappears or reduces significantly, well, then you have a big deficit problem. So the government is concerned that that 12 billion of what it regards as windfall corporation tax receipts, that all of that money becomes embedded in permanent expenditure here. And if anything happened, we'd have a problem. That is the basis. But the summer economic statement basically lays out the parameters for the budget that will be delivered on October 10th. Okay, basically, they have penciled in an increase in what it describes as core spending of 5.2 billion. This is basically spending on stuff like health, education, social welfare, you know, that that will be repeated year after year. So it's core as such. Uh, The Irish Fiscal Advisory Council believes that 5.2 billion is, um, is, is too small in a sense that they believe the government is, or the Department of Finance is not including a 250 million increase in what it describes as windfall capital investment. Okay, so the IFAC, the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council, believes that instead of 5.2 billion and a 6.1% increase in core spending, the real figure is 5.5 billion or a 6.4% increase. And to put that in context, um, the government a couple of years back set a spending limit of 5% increase in core spending from year to year. So the, 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 the department... Yeah, no, I, 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 I've heard, Michael, that. I've heard Michael McGraw repeatedly in trying to address that issue of kind of going over their own spending targets as, look, we have to try and create some balance and speak to the needs of the people and look at what's happening in inflation. So do you think that, do you think that this is like a, a prudent effort or a pre-election effort on Michael well, McGrath and Pascal? Uh, you know, there, there is a very difficult balancing act to be played here, and it's it's fine for people like the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council, the SRI and others, uh, to send out these very stern warnings about what government should or should not be doing in the economy. But the reality is that uh, real politic suggests that, you know, there is an election due by February 2025. Uh, the budget on October 10th will probably be the second last budget ahead of that election. Uh, it could be the last, you know, who knows what will happen in the next 12 months on the political front. So there is a political imperative here as well. So the balance for Michael McGrath and Pascal Donoghue in um, framing expenditure and taxation in the budget on October 10th is at the one, on the one hand, they have, you know, the political reality, they need to look after um, the people in our economy and our society. And secondly, they need to ensure they don't inject too much stimulus into an economy that is already growing quite strongly. So I think um, they, in the circumstances, they achieved a pretty decent balance because, you know, given the sorts of surpluses we're expected to deliver over the next couple of years, the obvious temptation ahead of an election would be just to go bald headed on a spending spree. And so there's there's a relative note of caution in what is planned for October 10th. So I I think 
balancing the political with the economic, um, it is pretty prudent. And I would say actually slightly conservative from a political perspective. And if you remember the budget before the last general election yeah. in February 20, Pascal Donoghue got a lot of criticism within Fine Gael um, over not going on a spending spree yeah. after that election. And a lot of people don't want to leave the largesse for Sinn Féin to come in and spend it, politically speaking, at least anyway. So just finally and very briefly, because time is against us, Jim, I wanted to ask you about the tax um, measures that were outlined this week, or the package at least of 1.1 billion. Government saying that it's going to prioritise these measures to shield workers from higher taxation arising because of inflation. But where does that leave the three Fine Gael ministers who came out a couple of weeks ago, and indeed Leo Varadkar himself saying that they want to tax cuts? Is that gone now? Uh, I think it is effectively gone. Um, okay, um, back in April... The, the 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 spring economic statement was talking about a 500 million um, reduction in the tax burden. Um, this week in the summer economic statement, they've upped that to 1.1 billion, and they've made it clear that the that 1.1 billion will be directed at um, indexing the various bans and allowances for inflation. In other words, trying to prevent workers because of wage inflation from moving from the lower to the higher tax band. So it's going to be the focus really, I would think, is going to be on indexation. So, you know, the abolition of the USC, um, the other uh, tax promises that have been made by Fine Gael TDs, particularly in the government, um, will will not be delivered. Mm. But, but, but um, you know, the, the reality, as I say, is that the one thing they really do need to avoid is injecting too much stimulus into an economy that's growing strongly. And it's also important, um, I think, to recognize, uh, and, and this really annoys me, I have to say, you know, this government is characterized as an extreme right-wing government. But if you look at the spending profile of the government in recent years, spending has increased pretty dramatically. And the yeah, it's all, it's all pre- pretty, pretty much like what Sinn Féin might do. Um, well, absolutely, only yeah. more, I would have thought. Well, sadly, Jim, we've we've run out of time and much more on this issue, I'm sure, with you in the future. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. That was Jim Power, economist. And actually, Jim and his colleague, uh, Chris Johns, have their own podcast called The Other Hand. And it's an excellent one for anyone who's interested in the macroeconomic situation in our economy uh, across the UK and Europe. Uh, But for now, Jim, we leave it there. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mandy. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock and we'll be broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings. We're always available as a podcast first from Finding Mornings on the News Talk app. The producer of Taking Stock today was John Fardy and thanks to Simon Keane and Stephen Daunt and John Byrne on research with Hugo De Silva on sound. And if you want to get in contact with us about any of today's items, you can email takingstock at newstalk.com. Now, Jonathan McRae is coming up next with Future Proof. And then it's Gavin Riley with all of your Sunday newspapers on the record. So from me, Mandy Johnston, that was Taking Stock. Thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.